Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and today we're going stateside to interview Nate Regier, founder and CEO of Next Element, a global advisory firm specialising in leadership communication. Nate is also author of two books, Beyond Drama, Transcending Energy Vampires and Conflict Without Casualties, a field guide for leading with compassionate accountability. Nate, welcome. Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. Tell me how you came to set up Next Element. Well, it's been a bit of a journey. I uh, I originally was a clinical psychologist by training. That was that was my passion. That was my uh, interest my whole life. And I practiced for 11 years. But something never really quite set with me. And that was the the medical model, the clinical model of of diagnosing and pathologizing and, and setting myself up kind of as the expert. Uh, I much preferred coaching methodologies and philosophy, um, consultation liaison and training. And also I've, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. And so I felt I felt more comfortable out out and about working in the corporate space. And so in 2008, a group of a team and I started Next Element to bring what we had learned from the clinical world in terms of behavioral change and social sciences research uh, to bear in the corporate world. And so in 2008, that's how Next Element started. Where did your interest in compassionate leadership come from? Well, I've always been, I think it's always been part of me. Uh, I grew up in Africa. My parents were missionaries and uh, they were with the Mennonite church, which is a a Christian denomination that focuses a lot on service, compassion, and pacifism and nonviolence. And so I, I grew up around that philosophy of alternative ways to deal with disputes and I think um, got my passion there for that. But I also saw a lot of violence and trauma growing up. And so I've always been on the quest for how can we build better skills for people to be more compassionate with each other uh, not just in war-torn areas or crisis areas or on the missionary field, but in the corporate workplace. I get the feeling that you're almost a fan of conflict, Nate. Would you like to say some more about that? Well, you're right, actually. Contrary to popular opinion, I think conflict is fantastic. And it comes from my belief and observation that diversity in the world. You know, we're focusing on diversity and inclusion so much now. I really believe that diversity is part of the grand design of the universe and it's here for a reason. It generates creativity. It creates the tension that that innovate that drives innovation. But what also comes with diversity is conflict. It is an inevitable natural consequence of, of diversity is that we're going to see things differently and want different things. So I have to ask myself, if conflict, if diversity is purposeful and good, then conflict must also have a purpose. And I searched for that purpose for many, many years until I met Michael Mead, who's a fantastic storyteller, poet, works with inner city youth and tribal rites of passage around the world. And his, his belief is that the purpose of conflict is to create. And so finally, I have found the purpose of conflict. But what we hadn't found yet is the mechanism to do that. That's why I'm such a fan of compassion, because I believe compassion has been given to humans. We are innately endowed with compassion because it is the tool that turns the energy of conflict into something creative. 
Hmm. Next element has 80 certified coaches and you train, coach and certify people in healthy conflict communication skills so that companies can build cultures of compassionate accountability. What does a culture of compassionate accountability look like? I would start by by sharing two ends of the spectrum about what it doesn't look like, but represents, I think, good intentions. On the one end, compassion without accountability gets you nowhere. We have found that simply being kind, simply being caring, does is not sufficient for dealing with some very difficult stuff. At the other end, for leaders, accountability without compassion gets them alienated. And only focusing on results and only focusing on the bottom line really doesn't build the kinds of cultures that, that perform at their best. So balancing the two is critical. A friend of mine, Doug Conant, who was the former CEO of Campbell's Soup and turned that company around and replaced almost 90% of their 300 plus uh, leadership team. But he did it in, he did it with a philosophy that we have to be tough minded on standards, but tender hearted with people. And so a culture of compassion accountability has three features. It's safe, it's curious, and it's consistent. People want to know that it is safe to be who they are and share what's on their heart and what's on their mind without fear of recrimination. Also, they need to know that it's a curious place where we're actually interested in each other's ideas and we want to have open minds to solve problems. And finally, it's consistent. It's critical that there are certain things that we know we stand for and that people can count on every day in our relationships and in, in the business of our company. I believe that the, a culture is the sum of our interactions. And so what that means is a culture of compassion accountability is where every interaction between people reinforces safety, curiosity, and consistency. What, in your experience, motivates senior executives like Doug to, to sign up for a Next Element training course? Well, there's always, it's always a joy to work with that small percent who want to go from good to great. And they're on, on the eternal quest for self-improvement. They're open-minded. They want to learn and grow. But for the most part, executives I work with are not that different than my patients in clinical work. Uh, what I discovered is that people don't come to us because they want to change. They come to us because they want the suffering to go away. And so the typical suffering and pain that executives are dealing with kind of fall in three categories. They're tired of dealing with triangulation and gossip and conflict. It's hard, it's draining, and they, they don't feel effective at dealing with it. Second of all, they feel like they're overworking for people, wishing that those people would become more autonomous and capable. They don't want to be doing other people's jobs, but it seems like they are. And then the third pain point is that it's they feel like they're putting out a lot of fires, but they're wishing that people would step up and solve their own problems and not come running to the leader all the time with it. So the backbone of Next Element's approach is the OPO process. So that's open, resourceful, persistent, open. Could you give our listeners an example of how it operates? Yeah, I will. Thank you for asking. ORPO is what we would consider our breakthrough behavioral technology for how we actually practice compassionate accountability in every interaction. It's how we operationalize the call to be to, to create safety, curiosity, and consistency. So like you said, it's a mnemonic for open, resourceful, persistent, and open. And this represents kind of four statements that we would put together 
that follow a cycle, a compassion cycle that that includes these skills in a very particular order uh, when we engage with conflict. And so we've done a lot of research and testing to develop this formula that delivers really the best results when we're going into tough stuff. An example might be, uh, let's say I'm in a team meeting and a, a peer of mine says something that I would consider very offensive and I feel, I, I feel bad about it. I, I see that it had a negative impact on me and the team and I want to talk to them about it. Maybe I approach them later and using ORPO, I started open and I, and I disclose how I'm feeling. I, I say, I feel, I feel defensive and angry about what happened. Uh, without blaming. Then I go to resourceful and I share information and get curious. And I say, um, here's what I heard. Here's how I interpreted it. I'd like to know your intention. Uh, And then I go to persistent and I get clear about why does this matter and why are we engaging in conflict here? And I say something like, you know, it's important for me that we support an environment of of safety and open-mindedness in our meetings where we can really talk about what matters. And then I go back to open and check in with that person emotionally to make sure that they know and I know that our goal here is not to hurt each other and our goal here is to is to be safe. And I might finish with something like, I'm curious how you feel about that. So put it all together, I might go to them and say, I feel defensive and angry about what happened. I interpreted your comment as this and this and this, and I saw how it affected the team. It's critical to me that we have a safe place to brainstorm ideas. How do you feel about that? And how have you found OPPO's being received? I mean, how how is it an improvement on, say, acceptance, congruence, empathy, the approach of the therapist Carl Rogers? Well, it's it's a that's a great question. We we find that on the surface, sometimes people theoretically say, okay, well, yeah, that's kind of what I do. But when they actually implement it, it's really profound because it hits it hits three critical areas, which are that safety, curiosity, and consistency. Um, and it also reinforces that both both parties are accountable for their feelings, their thoughts, and their behaviors, and that we're not trying to fix each other. We're trying to struggle together towards a common outcome. I think what's different from, say, Carl Rogers is that Let's take congruence, for example. Obviously, authenticity is important. We need to be real with each other. And so that fits into the openness part of ORPO. Um, Acceptance part is, yes, as a therapist, it's very important that we value the human being and that people know that they are unconditionally valuable. That's openness still. Empathy is critical also because that's an emotional connection between two people. But that, again, is just one of the strategies that we teach at openness. And so I would say that Carl Rogers' technique is very much more about openness, and it doesn't really address the resourcefulness and persistence aspects of ORPO. That's a great reply. Thanks for that. That's a great answer. ORPO is more of a process, and uh, I guess uh, acceptance, congruence, empathies, as you say, the ingredients of openness. So far, you've worked mostly with the leaders of organizations, but you have plans for making your training more affordable and accessible. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because this is really much more than just a business strategy for us. Our mission and our theme for 2020 is Compassion Reimagined. And we set that theme because it is really our goal to make compassion accessible in every workplace in the world. And so we're striving to find ways to to do that. 
For example, our, we have an introductory course, a two-hour course called Conflict and You, and it can be delivered virtually via a live webinar. So there's really no limit geographically or by numbers how many people can join. And this is really critical because we offer this by appointment for organizations, and we also do train, train the trainers so that inside organizations, trainers can be spreading this across their organization. Our Compassion Mindset program that we just launched in 2019 is our enterprise-level application, and that brings a couple new behavioral technologies to the table, and it makes it possible to scale virtually infinitely within an organization, either vertically or horizontally. And we do offer an executive version of that course that's virtual every couple of weeks. So we're really trying to break the ties of geography and time and make make it accessible um, and affordable to anybody. Are you uh, are you prepared to tell me what the uptake's been like so far for these courses? How's it going? Yeah, I am. And the compassion mindset is very new. And so we don't have a lot there because we're going into a brand new market with a new product. And so the sales cycle is is long for a product like this. But for, for the leading out of drama, our compassion accountability model, it's just been phenomenal. People are resonating it with this model in Saudi Arabia, in China, in Australia, in Canada, in Europe, they don't all connect at the same place, but the model gives each one of them culturally and in their businesses a breakthrough way to think about compassion. And no matter where we go, everybody wants more compassion, but they just don't know how to operationalize it and teach it in a practical, measurable, scalable way. Yeah, I think that's my experience as well. Can you give me some idea of the the cost of, of the compassion application? Because uh, well, let's take a an SME, say, of, of 100 people. How mm. much would it cost to roll out that to, to all of the employees within that SME? For 100 people? Um, I just did a virtual course um, for the one of the largest car rental companies in the United States. And we did it all virtually with all of their call center managers. And so we had about 240 people. But we priced that that whole thing. Let's see, I think we charged about 125 a person and then uh, several thousand dollars for the webinar. And so it ended up being maybe 150 to $200 per person, which is incredibly affordable for a course like this. When you're yeah. comparing it to the to the obvious benefit. Yeah. You know, I, I listened to your previous guest um, who was talking about studying compassion in the National Health Service. And um, we actually have trainers within the National Health Service in England that are teaching this work. That I'm sorry. West, wasn't it? Yeah, Michael. Michael, yeah. And so it's very affordable for them. It's it's comparatively very affordable compared to other tools that they're licensing and training as well. Um, and very easy to come on board with. And I have to say, I, I'm very attracted to your vision. And it's Michael West actually said at the end of that podcast, words to the effect that if all of the NHS's staff were compassionate towards one another, uh, that would help them be compassionate towards their patients. And they have uh, 1.4 million staff, a million patients every 36 hours. If all yeah. those staff and patients then took that out into society, imagine what a difference that w- would make. So the work that you're doing really does have that potential to transform society. Thank you. Yes, we're we're very we we are passionate about that. You're developing 
measures also to measure compassion. I was talking to Tracy Allen, Chief Exec of Derbyshire Community Health Services, NHS Trust, in episode 12. That's the one before Michael West. And she's wary of measuring compassion using input measures. Uh, Surely it's only measurable in terms of the experience of the individuals on the receiving end. Would you agree? Great, great question. Yes, to your first part of your question, we are having measures. We've developed what's called the drama resilience assessment, and it measures a person's resistance to drama behavior based on their strength in these three compassion skills. And so it really looks at the balance on a person's capability of resisting the drama and turning that energy into something healthy. But I want to push I want to push back on the second part of your question because I think there's assumption behind that question that we're trying to change. Mm-hmm. Compassion isn't something that we do to people or give to people. So it's not about being on the receiving end or the giving end. Compassion is about struggling alongside people towards greater value, greater capability and greater responsibility of both parties. And so I think that's where if we think the compassion is like alleviating suffering or some altruistic act we do for people, it's easy to focus on the other person. But compassion always starts with me and it is intrinsically rewarding. Um, research from Stephen Treziak um, in his book, Compassionomics, it's, it's all about compassion and healthcare. What he showed is that when people are practicing empathy, which is most commonly aligned with compassion, the pain centers of the brain are lighting up. So we are becoming then motivated to alleviate pain. But when we're practicing true compassion, which is struggling with people towards creating something amazing, it's the reward centers of the brain that are lighting up. So real compassion is intrinsically rewarding. And that's that's different. So what we're measuring then is a person's capacity, capability for executing the behaviors that create this rewarding, generative type of compassion. I'll take that correction in the spirit in which it was given, Nate, because um, I quite like the idea of co-creating compassion together. Uh, and I think it's maybe that's an important way forward for the health service, actually, in the UK, where a lot of trust now are bringing in health coaching and trying to get away from the service provider customer model to to more of a partnership model. Do you practice compassionate accountability at Next Element HQ? We do, and uh, it's part of everything we do because we are we are a firm that is based on people skills and culture. So, from the very beginning, our commitment was that our company will be a laboratory, and we will practice and refine. Um, and walk the walk the talk every day. We've we've developed very specific applications of Orpo for meetings, for performance conversations, for building daily connections, and for making apologies. And those are four of the most critical areas of an organization's life. And so we use these in our company all the time. We use Orpo to talk about conflict in our team. We use it in our communication with our clients and our network of trainers. And especially we rely on it when there's tension or tough conversations that we have to have. Our belief is that if a client was invisible and was walking around our office at any time, they would see us struggling to to refine and use our own tools. Great. What do you consider your greatest business achievement to date? We're open. <laughs> we started in 2008 in October, which was the official announcement of the Great Recession here. And that was a time when every company was slashing training budgets and no one wanted to invest in 
training and consulting. And so we're still here 11 years later. Um, very few startups make it that far. And we've had to reinvent ourselves two times to be able to be relevant. And so I suppose I'm proud of that. But but even more, I'm most proud is that we have made a contribution to a fuller understanding of compassion and made it accessible to any workplace, any person in any workplace in the world. And that's why our theme for 2020 is Compassion Reimagined. Do you detect um, any difference between geographies in terms of the update, uh, sorry, in terms of the uptake uh, for compassion? Yes, absolutely. One of the things, like I'm going to keynote a coaching conference in Serbia in uh, March, and one of the things they've told me is that while people are craving compassion, it's really the pain of drama that they're trying to get away from. And so they're not really in a place where they're aspiring to be from good to great. They simply want solutions to stop the pain. But if we go maybe towards like West Coast, US, uh, Canada, a couple of places, we're seeing a lot more aspirational versions of we need to just be more compassionate. And it's just a lever for business success. But we can meet people at any, at any end of that spectrum and, and move along that journey with them. Would you like to disclose a mistake you've made on your leadership journey and what you've learned from it? Of course not, but I will. <laughs> of course I don't want to, but it's such a critical part of, of learning and growing. And whenever I have guests on my podcast, I always ask them to share their most spectacular failure. So it's only fair that I do the same thing. Oh, can um, I just interject for a second yeah. and say, would you like to give your... Uh, podcast a free plug on my podcast what's sure sure my podcast is called on compassion with dr nate and it is so similar in intention and purpose to what you're doing chris is that we're trying to feature corporate leaders who are doing the tough work and messy work of trying to bring more compassion into their workplace and giving practical strategies and tips and encouragement for other leaders that are trying to do the same um so we are on the same same journey. Excellent. But here's my failure. In in uh, I would say this is probably my biggest failure. In my second book, Conflict Without Casualties, I used a case study that was based on a real client situation, but I disguised it pretty heavily to the point where I thought nobody could possibly recognize it. And I took a few liberties with with maybe embellishing a couple things, um, just kind of for the sake of storytelling. But I didn't ask permission about the client. And when the book was published, several people on the executive team immediately recognized it and were very, very upset. And this led to one of the most difficult and embarrassing situations I've ever had with a customer and just kind of a PR nightmare uh, for us. And it was my fault. And I grew a lot from that and really learned some valuable lessons about transparency and trust and kind of the, the value of long-term relationships. We've restored trust with that client, but it's not the same and it's taking a long time and it's going to be a long, long journey. Mm, I feel your pain, actually. When uh, when I produced uh, Compassionate Leadership, I came within an inch of making the same mistake and I thought I'd disguise something very heavily. And my wife looked over my shoulder on that occasion and she said, I think you should ask them first. And she mm. was so right. Oh my goodness. I, I would, uh, I would benefit from your wife's wisdom. Do you practice self-compassion? I mean, what does your self-care regime look like? That's a good question. And since, since I do believe that compassion starts with, 
within us. And it's something, it's about who we are with people, not what we do to people. That's a relevant question. I think for me, the usuals, sleep, diet, and exercise are very important. Sleep is really important to me. Um, It's something that we've instilled in our whole family, how important good sleep is. Uh, That's something I came to really appreciate in my clinical work. Um, I think also meaningful quality time with family and the people Mm -hmm. that I care about the most, just spending good time and investing in that relationship. Also, I know about my personality. I need quality time by myself um, as well. And so I make space in the mornings for my, my routine of, of some, some stretches and some, some more mindfulness-based work and then also time to write. That's when I'm most creative. Most of my vacations are in the mountains. I really enjoy being in the mountains. I enjoy hiking. I enjoy being in that space. And I absolutely love my work. And so I hate to leave on Friday and I can't wait to come back on Monday. So creating a place where my work fills my tank as well is very, is very joyful for me. And is there a particular experience or person that's inspired you in your leadership journey, Nate? Well, I'm going to say my parents. I I know that may sound cliche, but one of the things my dad always said growing up that I never appreciated until later was the older I get, the smarter my parents get. And it's been amazing. It's just weird how I'm starting to live out and and believe some of these really deep philosophies that I think he tried to instill, but but I saw it through how he lived and how how she lived. Um, so I would say them, um, but then also a gentleman by the name of Taby Kaler. He originated a, a communication model called PCM, Process Communication Model, and that model really changed my life and gave me a tool that has transformed the way I see myself, the way I deal with my family, the day, the way I deal with everyone else. And it's also a core part of our company. So my parents and Taby Kaler, I would say. Right. What you said about PCM has uh, piqued my interest. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's really, a, it's a fascinating model. I was not introduced to this in all of my clinical work. And I specialized in in neuropsychological assessment, personality assessment, but the process communication model is a is a behavioral model of communication that was developed based on observation and classification of behavior, um, and it identifies personality types that are observable simply by watching behavior, and it teaches people how to adapt our communication to meet people where they're at. So it, it really, for me, was a powerful tool for understanding how do we actually leverage diversity of personality rather than just trying to assess it. Also, it has a lot of deep psychology behind it, which I geek out. I, I love that <laughs> as well. It's it's being used by Pixar Studios. It was used by NASA. It was used by uh, President Bill Clinton. It's just an incredibly effective and practical model for communicating with individual differences. Um, and our company is a distributor for the United States, but it is a global model that's available Ooh. to anyone. Okay. And uh, you've mentioned on Compassion with Dr. Nate, Mm. uh, the podcast. Are there other podcasts, books, or videos that you recommend to leaders who want to think about practicing more with more compassion? Yeah. Well, of course, I'm going to plug my book, Conflict Without Casualties, because I think it has Mm. a unique spin on this topic. But um, I would say that my biggest inspiration and my all-time favorite book around this is Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. Any book by the Arbinger Institute, their whole series is just phenomenal for compassion, for self-compassion, for understanding interpersonal violence and and interpersonal restorative uh, interactions. So that would be my recommendation. 
And here's a question that I ask all of my guests. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. What would I tell myself at 20? Because at 20, I wasn't listening to anybody. I would. Here's what I would tell myself. Never burn bridges because relationships matter and they can last for a lifetime. And I burned a lot of bridges because I decided it was better to be justified than to be effective. And so I would tell myself, don't burn bridges. And when you have the choice, choose to be effective instead of be justified. That's great advice. Nate, I'm off now to do some reading and listening. It's been a really inspiring interview. So thanks for coming on the show. It is a pleasure. I I also am inspired by your questions. Thank you for inviting me to think deeper and think in different ways. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. This episode was recorded in Kansas and Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.